and zip lock that. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. I remember nights. I didn't remember nights. I damn near went crazy. I had to get it right. Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw podcast, and we are in the booth today. It's me, Cody, joined today, of course, by my good friend, Neil. How we doing, Neil? Good being with you, and of course, thank you to Mr. Jeezy. Yes! We got to get off to a good start, and I know that's essential to, uh, to a good start. We listen to the feedback. Listen, we we understand. We can't do anything about those other guys. We appreciate Mr. Jeezy for what it is. We thank him for everything that he provides. And we will not go another show without giving uh, our praises to him. And we should also call out our, our first sponsor slash partner, Holderness and Born. The Trap Draw today is presented by Holderness and Born, our good friends over at HMB. Let's talk about their polo shirts for a second. Yes, the fit and fabrics are on point, but HMB really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. They are our kind of number one product in the pro shop, and you can pick out an HMB collar from across the driving range. Why? Because it has premium interfacing hidden collar stays and an English cut that is modern but not too aggressive. Great. What does all that mean? It means you look more polished, more put together. A great collar frames your face and gives you good posture. And in the spring and summer, it stays sharp all day long. It doesn't lay down or flatten out as you sweat all over those six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com and use code NLU15 for 15% off your next order. That's hbgolf.com. There is no and in there, folks. Got some new H&B stuff in the pro shop. The collars are great, but the, the quality of the shirts is second to none. So check them out. Use the 15% off. Cody, what are we talking about today? We got a lot to run down, Neil. Talk a little bit about what you've been up to the last couple months that kind of culminated this last weekend. We got a little bit of uh, current events, things that I wanted to discuss that what we're monitoring a little bit. And then we're going to have a special guest on the back end, uh, a, a friend of ours, colleague, uh, phenomenal journalist, Kevin Van Valkenburg. KVV is going to be here to talk about his excellent piece that he wrote for ESPN. All about mushrooms, man. We're talking mushrooms. You know I love that. Uh, first, I, I do have to issue a rebuttal to the last chop session, TC and Charlie Warzel. I, I went on a, a post-half marathon run yesterday. I had the trap draw on. TC continues to sully my name on chop sessions, and I won't stand for it. Oh, no. What, what happened this time? Well, he's calling me out for the Warriors and Kings, and, and Warriors have tied the series up. I am a Warriors fan, but I feel like TC should find community with the Warriors. I mean, it's a classic story of the older brother trying to stay on top as the younger brother comes of age, comes into his own, tries to take the crown. I mean, TC is the Warriors, right? He's just he's trying to keep me, the Kings, down. And, you know, I, I don't understand how he doesn't see that. Uh, I also... Honestly, this is the Warriors Kings has been must see TV for me. I've really enjoyed the NBA playoffs as a whole, but that's the best series going. Game tonight, it's Wednesday. Game tonight, game five in Sacramento. I mean, this is a big one. De'Aaron Fox is hurt, and it's it's fun for me to see a team like Sacramento that has kind of a losing tradition for the last 15, 20 years try to roll the snowball over the hill, try to knock off the King. I feel like that was the story of my Columbia football career. We never were able to roll the snowball over the hill, 
but you get right up to the line, you get right up to the edge, you, you kind of look over like, hey, what would it be like if we, uh, if we beat Yale? Oh, no, let's lose by three. Uh, let's get a 12-man on the field penalty. You know, losing and winning and losing are, are habits, right? And they're really tough habits to, to break. And so it's fun to watch, you know, I, I feel like every once in a while, maybe, maybe more often than every once in a while, but you, you get to see teams try to break that habit in a very specific way with a matchup against kind of a local rival. So I will be tuning in tonight. And I just think TC should, you know, see some of the similarities with, with, the, uh, with the Warriors. So anyway, good luck to, to Randy's Kings tonight, and I'll be watching. You watching any NBA, Cody? No, none, not at all. Not a basketball guy? No, not really. I'm happy the baseball season started. Watching some Rangers are off to a hot start. You know, I got to support my local team. But really, if you're going to say anything about, like, sp- professional athletics, I would probably say, like, I'm more of a hockey fan than anything. Really? Yeah. But, I, I mean, we're, I was very, like, lucky that when I lived in North Carolina that for a long time, like, the hurricane stunk. And then like the last five years, they've completely turned the, the franchise around. They're not only like in the playoffs, but they're like going deep in winning championships. Like I absolutely love it, but you know, we got a good thing going here too. I think I'm going to be a, a big Dallas stars guy. I got a couple friends who are season ticket holders. So we'll see. And they're, we're, we're continuing on in the playoffs. Big win love last it. night. What I will say about real quick about your brother too, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, maybe the last 20 years, the like police force in America has become a little bit too like militarized and everybody wants to talk about like demilitarizing the, the police force because they're not really, doesn't really jive with like serving and protecting and things. I'm a, I'm a little concerned about your brother. I think uh, maybe I've militarized him a little too much because the list of things that he's monitoring is basically just things that, a lot of them that we just talk about right now. And I've, I've kind of turned him into this foreign war correspondent. And I don't know if I, I, if he's maybe gone too far out there, he potentially, I mean, I don't know where he's at this week. I know he's in Scotland, but he's sending me messages back reporting from the front lines of Khartoum, giving me on the spot updates about famines that are going on in West Africa. You never know, man. He's, he's, uh, you know, you got him following some of these underground Instagram accounts that have to have like backup accounts when they get blocked for, for gnarly shit that they're posting. Yeah, exactly. You got to stay away from the pills. It doesn't matter. Okay. So before we get into that, the geopolitics stuff, I'm curious, you, you're watching baseball. You're also coaching softball or baseball. What baseball? How's the squad? The little Rangers. We're awesome. We have like 13 Little, you know, six and seven year olds on the team. They run around, all chase the ball at the same time. It's it's literally like, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever like fed animals or anything else like that, but when they throw hay out to like a herd of cows, and like all the cows slowly walk over and start to pick up that little piece of hay. That's that's what happens on T ball night. I'm a little concerned. I'm not gonna, you know, this podcast is reported on it a lot in the past about participation trophies. I have to award an MVP at the end of each game, which I, I don't really enjoy doing. But overall, they 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 hustle. You know, we're getting bats on balls. It's T-ball, man. Well, you know, listen, especially in a sport like baseball where it's all about consistency and stats over the course of a season, I, I would encourage you to change that to just awarding the game ball. Maybe not MVP. Let's let's not devalue the MVP award. Let's just call it, hey, game ball goes to 
you know, whoever. Now, do you have do you have a star on the team, like a six or seven year old that is playing like a ten year old? Yeah, it just happens to be one of my twin girls. Really? Yeah, that's exciting. Lila is like a, the the absolute hustler, man. It does not matter what position you put her at; she is like just sprinting towards the ball, push <laughs> at times pushing other kids out of the way, making other kids cry, and then just like honestly, it's to the point where um, we have to move the infield like completely back. Because she just rips line drives like she's she's almost mastered like hitting the ball off the tee. And how's that playing with twin dynamic? Uh, it's not good. I'm, I'm really? going to be honest with you. Uh, the other one spends the majority of her time in in shallow left field, picking up uh, you know dandelions or or you know trying to chase butterflies or things of that nature. Basically, just counting down time because she knows that. Like she's just looking for excuses. So she's like, ah, it's either a potty break. I can't ask to go to the bathroom for another two innings because dad's going to get mad at me. Oh, I'm thirsty now. Uh, dad, there's ants over here. I need to move over to this position. You know, the, the, whatever you think of. So it's there. You can see their little personalities coming out more and more, but either way, I mean, they love it. Zemi gets pumped up when Lila does something really good, which is awesome. But she's just kind of out in her own world. Good for her. As, as she's allowed to be. 100%. You know, that's my good little, stuff. My little artist. We had a, yeah. uh, the little, little one turned four a couple weeks ago, but we ended up having like her, her kid's birthday party. And it was the first time that we hosted a kid's birthday party of that size, not at our house. We actually went and rented one of these places. And it was like this massive warehouse where they have like different, it's, it's partitioned into like four different sections and they have different bounce houses and and dodgeball courts and laser tag and and glow in the dark this and that and all in all you know you get pizza at the end and i it was me and my wife and all the other parents you know trying to shuttle in i think we had like 18 kids there from station to station to station which was awesome and the little girl nina our youngest had an absolute blast it was a paw patrol themed birthday of course she got all the presents that she wanted she was so happy and it was the first time ever that that people have like saying happy birthday to her in a public setting like that. So when she sat down and like every all of her friends were around her and started to sing happy birthday, like just the the like the shock of it, you could see like those this overwhelming amount of emotions coming through her face where she like couldn't control her feelings and she was so happy. It was super, super cute. But all in all, I think it cost me like seven hundred dollars for probably an hour and a half of fun. So, Please at least tell me you lit the kids up in laser tag. Oh, for sure. All over the place. And I got I up mean, in that, that bounce that, house. That's got to be right up your wheelhouse. Was checking them into the walls, you name it. Like, I was <laughs> I was a master in there. I still want to... Uh, I have a dream to organize an NLU team building paintball outing you guys would at some point. Smoked. I would I would just love, love to do that. I had a friend growing up. His dad went to West Point, and they had a big backyard, big paintball family and he oh man he was running you know outflanking maneuvers like <laughs> you wanted to be on mr black's team that's for sure he was you know he was covering some ground god that's it's good stuff awesome. i love it anyway neil we got some important stuff we we've talked about our goals you've clearly laid it out in the goal podcast what you wanted to do for this year you're continuing to check them off but we have a really big development that happened this past weekend we do. Half marathon. 
knock it off the list. It's 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 been completed. You can fly the banner. We had a uh, a goal, like kind of an un, unwritten goal for me during my very like personal training, as we've talked about. Uh, of I wanted to break two hours. Right at first, it was like, oh, I don't want to walk, but it's like, okay, well, at some point, you got to have some type of time goal even if you're not really tracking your times when you're, when you're doing your training. But I, I felt like the two hour mark was, was the goal. I hit one fifty nine eleven. Ooh, we like that buddy. A nine Oh eight yeah. pace over 13.1 miles. And I think it's a win for the trap draw goals podcast. I mean, the way it came about was I, you know, Randy wants to run a marathon, you know, later this year, I was talking about how much I hated running. I said, you know what, Randy, if you're going to run a marathon, I'll do a half marathon. Of course, of course, my buddies, Evan and Jerry, Listen to that episode in January. Hit me up immediately to hold my feet to the fire. They said, we're running the Brooklyn Half Marathon in April. And uh, I couldn't hide from it. So I probably probably procrastinated on the training for a little bit. Got into it in earnest probably a month and a half ago where I was running, you know, three trying to get out three times a week at least. And I was really proud. Like, it's amazing what, what some consistency will do. I went from back in March, like early March, not being able to run – you know, four miles without like, yeah, I'm going to stop and stretch. Yeah. Let's get a stretch in, you know, uh, <laughs> Ooh, to how like those lungs feel, man. Last week, you know, I went on like probably eight and a half. I got up to about eight and a half miles in training and that, that was concerning a little bit of like, all right, well still got about five more to go here, but I felt really good about that last run because I kept my heart rate down like under 150 for like most of it. So I could just tell like, all right, I could, you know, keep going, but let's save the legs. So on, yeah, on race day, the, the whoop logged me at a 19.5 strain, which is pretty good, but I was really happy about my, my heart rate stayed under 155, pretty much like the average heart rate was like 153 or something like that. And then I had, uh, my, my highest heart rate was 181 and that was at the finish line. So I, I, you gassed it the, the last end. like 400 yeah. meters. I just sprinted through the line, which turned out to be, you know, probably getting me under the, uh, the two, under hour, the two mark. hour mark. So I think looking back on it, I could have like, I could have gone out a lot quicker, but I was very dedicated to like, let's not get, let the adrenaline get the best of us. Let's, you know, go out at our own pace. I was in like the first wave, like corral B and it rained from start to finish brutal weather. I would take that over heat, but it was. Yeah, I was gonna it say was, it sounds like like good running race weather though. Yeah, but like puddles, just a lot of yeah. like stuff going on. As far as like, it, it wasn't an efficient run for people, but like that first six miles, it's along the uh, waterfront. When the pavement in Brooklyn gets wet, does it like uh, you know? When I think of water on pavement, I think of oh, it's just like a little wet. It, it's not like slippery because I know what I it, when I when I've been walking around major cities that have basically trash on the street like when when it gets wet it gets like slimy and like uber slippery and you're gonna like bust your ass is that the case that that you're running on or is it like normal pavement i did not have any any instances of slipping and i think they pick a route like it's kent and flatbush like they're big well-paved roads for the most part there's a little bit of cobblestone down by the brooklyn bridge but didn't ever feel like i was gonna get you know we weren't going to have a Peloton situation, everybody going down like the, the cycling races in the rain. But that first like six miles, you know, I did a good job of pacing myself. And, but I was getting, God, I was getting past like 
with by you know in this wave run just dudes are they're getting so much more out of their stride than me and it was kind of like a little demoralizing uh, but I, I stayed kind of stayed in my process I had a podcast pumping just a real like nitty-gritty O'Shaughnessy invest like the best you know like just getting getting in the weeds on some stuff like don't want to don't want my don't want to get jacked up here how much I, I think that was a good strategy yeah how much work did you put in to finding a two-hour long podcast that was going to get you hyped the whole time because you don't want to be fig like figgling around trying to skip around you can't go back 30 forward 30 like you got to find the perfect one for it well i had that one dialed and then i had another one in the hopper but i i was thinking like let's do the let's do an hour and a half pod and then we'll listen to music on the back half when i when i really need to get you know if if I need it, so yeah, it was it was a, I, I think listening to like a very boring podcast was helpful for me. It's a lot easier to get lost in someone's voice than it is to, you know, just listen to music because I always start counting down like how long's the song gonna oh I know how long the song is and yep. it makes the, me very conscious of like what I'm doing. The same way I'm like oh I've listened to five songs they're all probably about four minutes so I'm twenty minutes in. Yeah, uh, I'm doing the math the whole yep. time, which is bad. So the. And, and also, I would say during the training, like, I don't commute much, so I don't get a chance to listen to a ton of pods. It's been great for, you know, me getting out of the house. So you get down, you get down like the Brooklyn Bridge, and then it's a pretty much a gradual climb up to Prospect Park. And I did really well on the hill, like the gradual incline. I, that's where I was actually passing people. And then there was a, a, about a mile, like, switchback by the park. And that was crucial around, like, mile eight, nine, where... I, I basically distracted myself for at least 10 to 15 minutes just looking for my buddies with the people coming by me. And uh, they were ahead of you? Yes. My buddy Evan, we started together, but he's, you know, did he's much faster than me. So he's up. I saw him. I think he finished with like a 150 or 148 or something like that. Uh, but I, I was able to locate him. I'm just like staring at people through the track. A couple NLU call outs. Nice. I was, I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, you know. So it was funny, kind of, you know, crossing paths with people, and then finish strong. And I, I would say a couple things. One, I, I was like, I probably, you know, if I had done the training manual, that that this is like the good and bad of the internet. Like there was a very, I, you know, could have asked for help, could have done it with my friends that did better than me. But I'm really glad for this first experience that I did it on my own because now I understand like if I did a marathon or another half, like, okay, now I know why I would train different. And like compared to Rainier where it was like, yo, you, there's a guide, execute his game plan. All you got to do is just one step in front of the other, take care of your body, you know, have a good attitude. Don't, you know, just, just listen basically. In that setting, you have to do that so you don't die. But it's not like I almost enjoyed just the figure it out for yourself and the simplicity of it. Like just start going for a run and just go a little farther every time, a little farther every time. If I want to get competitive with this, yeah, you got to put together a plan and consult the, you know, all the resources online for it. But this was a very successful challenge for me because I, I'm, my body feels good. I also want to shout out, uh, I got some of those Brooks running shoes. That was a game changer. I think I mentioned on this pod back in January. I mean, this is Captain Obvious here, but like, yeah, I've been just running in like Nike cross trainers for the last five years. I finally 
got a decent pair of running shoes. You mean shoes that are like designed for running? Of course. I mean, the, with these big soles, it, it was a game changer for my IT bands and my uh, my knee. And then I would say the best, like there may not be anything better than the post endurance challenge cold beer, right? Same thing after Rainier at the base, having the pizza and beer with the guides was and, and my buddies was epic. And then sitting on a bar stool in Park Slope, just drinking a few Guinness and BS and with my buddies talking like my one friend, John Salinger, want to shout him out. He had like a 126 or something. Like Whoa. he's a sub three, three hour marathon guy. So he just kind of showed up. He didn't really train for this, but yeah, he's like, Oh, cool. We're going for a run. I was talking to him about the, the strides. I was like, man, I just feel like I'm getting, I have a very inefficient stride and all these people are like getting a lot more out of the same energy output that I am. And he was like a game changer for him. He's like, I implemented this pretty intense, but like, like stretching regimen. And it's like, I do it when I watch TV, like two or three nights a week, just long holds on the hamstrings, quads, like just sit there, watch TV and like, you know, stretch. And he said it, it was like that, that was the change. He's like, cause it's, you're exactly right. Like now I get my knee up higher and it feels easy to do. I don't have to consciously like tell myself to pick my legs up. So, you know, stuff like I, I feel like I had to experience what it's like to run where I'm currently at first before like, but if I had tried to implement that stretch routine, I wouldn't know why I needed it. You know what I mean? So I think all that is, uh, is good. So I would longest, say, is, this is the longest you've ever ran. Oh, by like literally six miles at least. I, I commend you for that, for doing it your way, because I think a half marathon is like the perfect place to do that before you, you're right, before you have to get like, I don't want to say technical, but actually bringing in outside influences to, to help you with your training. The one thing that you talked about is your specific training for this, and it's different than your climb that you guys did last year, is that this is an individual training plan versus last year training. It truly was a group effort. And yes, you individually have to make sure that you're not going to die and that you're capable of continuing to climb at that elevation and you have the endurance to get it done. But really, you don't want to be the slowest and weakest guy in the group. And I think group mentality training is so much easier for that reason because you're like, fuck, I just can't let my buddies down. Versus this, if you want to take a couple days off, you're like, fuck it, I'll make up for it on Wednesday. Like, We'll be fine. Oh, I didn't get my long run in this weekend. I'll, I'll, we'll get it done this week. And it has this easy tendency to just continue to roll over and roll over and roll over until you check yourself. But man, what an awesome, awesome achievement. Now, is a full marathon in the cards? I don't know, man. I remember about mile 12, like I wouldn't even be halfway. You know, that's, that's tough. Like, and I, I worry about my pace. Like some of these guys that can run in the threes, you know, three hour, like, like That's John so or like fast. my buddy Ross, it's like, there's something like, I know my, my friend Ross has said with the New York marathon, the people that are coming in at four thirty five hours, it's like, that's, he's like, that's really impressive. That's a, that's an amount of time running that I will never have to experience. And there's something just about the sheer time of that yeah. that I would probably struggle with. So, I mean, that's like a slow round of golf, dude. I know it's, it's, and I think I'd be in that four around that four number unless I really got into it. And I, I, I wouldn't say I particularly enjoy it, 
but I guess what I've learned is the simplicity of it. It does make it like achievable and it does allow distance running, like fit into your, you know, calendar, right? Like I actually went for a run yesterday, like just, you know, three miles to, you know, get outside. So I might miss the, the personal time, you know, the, the podcast stuff. So I think overall, like it's changed my opinion on running, um, but I don't know if I want to make running like a competitive thing. I just want it to be still like a, I don't really care. I've really enjoyed going for a run, not caring what my time is. Right. I'm going to run till I feel tired and then I'm, I'm good to go. Right. So how is the body feeling afterwards? Uh, very good. I played golf yesterday or on Monday, the day after, uh, it was, it was a scramble. So that was probably good, but it was, it was tough to get limbered up for that. The, uh, the calves got really tight quads got tight but i'm very happy that my my uh, knee like my the it bands going into my knee have been an issue and those those are fine so overall i think success in that we didn't we didn't beat the body up well that's the thing you hear from a lot of people who just run and don't do any other form of lifting or stretching or yoga or, or you name it is that like their ankles their knees their hips their lower back just ends up getting like completely destroyed because of the amount of time that they're putting onto it. It doesn't matter if it's a treadmill or pavement. Did you have well, any We're back of those? at it this week, Cody. We got a rec league game tonight in the city. First one back since I got my my eye busted and stitched up. So getting back on the court tonight. We got a softball game Friday. Uh, Smokers, Friday Night Lights, Central Park, be there. The Czar's mashing. Uh, so, you know, the... Uh, we're going to parlay this into staying active, competing once a week. That was the original goal yep. on, on the trap draw goals pod. We're competing once a week, so we're we're getting after it. Now, one thing that I think the best thing that you did in your prep, and you described it when you start you, when you were talking about your race and kind of how it uh, how it started out, and you had all these people passing you. But you ran a five k like a couple weeks ago, and I think it taught you a lot. Yes, it did. Like, don't, don't let someone else set your pace, especially if, well, it, you can do that. You tried if you to know, follow all the little rabbits out there and it didn't Like if I was out. wearing the watch and I'm, I'm, I know what my pace should be, but I, I think I did a really good job of just like anecdotally tracking my heart rate. Like, okay. You know, I, I've heard on a few pods of like, if you can carry on a conversation, but you don't really want to, you're probably in your like zone two. Right. And that's kind of where I was all day of like, no, I'm not like I'm not huffing and puffing. I don't really want to talk to anybody, but ran into my buddy Kurt at like mile seven and I was able to, you know, communicate with him very easily, you know, but like so it's like, OK, we're good. We're not we're not overdoing it. And then I was able to build and my my last six miles was my best pace, which was good. Any funny moments out there, not only from you, your buddies, other people running. I remember I did. uh uh, the, I think the longest race that I've ever done is like a 10 K, which is not that long, but I remember just seeing people like they didn't prepare and not like people who were in like somewhat close to being athletic shape or used to be athletes, like just random people who turned up and expected themselves to be able to run a 10 K and their bodies are just like completely cramping up. They're seizing. Uh, I saw one guy literally pooped his pants and was just <laughs> flinging, Flinging doo doo everywhere. That's gnarly. I think I was in the wave one, so I probably missed a lot of that. I would say 
not a ton of fans out there because the rain was so bad. So, you know, you had to really, you had to be there for a specific person probably. Um, I, I will say though, some runners just wear really dumb stuff. It's like some like kind of overweight guys wearing like the really small tank tops, you know, or like, it's like, what, why would you wear that? You know, I you just, just wear a shirt, man. Anybody out there rocking the, the hydration vests where they can put all their bottles or the, the waistbands and getting super into it, making sure they got all their goops and, and so on jellies that one, and everything. That one switchback area by the prospect park, as I was coming around the turn to go down that on my way out, the, some of the the hardcore, like the guys that probably came in like the top hundred are, are rolling by and they're just, yeah, a couple of them had the water bottles, like, you know, strapped to their hand. But I mean, God, the, the, the length of their strides is like incredible. I'm like, you know, and I'm taking these like baby steps and these guys God, are you're just so into it. They're just gliding. I'm like, damn, you know, that's impressive. Can't do that. But they're all, you know, they're all tiny. So it's not. You know, there are a few meat sticks out there, no shirts on, just like CrossFit, you know, your people, Cody, the CrossFitters, Hell yeah. uh, you know, getting in their cardio. So Hell it's yeah. cool. It was, well, it was a good experience overall. So there you have it. Well, I'm proud of you, Neil. I think it's Thank a you. awesome, awesome accomplishment. We're going to get gotta, you on a, on a half marathon? Sure. Why not? Fuck it. I'll do it. I mean, you're a good runner. I enjoy running. That's your so, jam, isn't it? Yeah, I enjoy it. All right, buddy. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're so far in the zone. Keep working on that stride. And and ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're running races or, or just out getting that body moving that at the end of the day, that's all you got to do. Yep. All right. Got to stay in shape. I think that's that is the might be the key to life. If people learn anything from this, which I think you're a great fucking role model for people out there in their 30s to 40s of just get out and go do something. It's not that difficult. All right. Next sponsor for today is Omni Hotels and Resorts. Neil, they got 12 destinations, 25 courses from coast to coast. And that Omni Resorts have it all. They're get, they have great golf, sophisticated resorts, spas, foods, pools, you name it. Omni takes their golf seriously with top architects and continued investment. We got to talk about one thing today, and that is the new Omni Frisco, and Fields Ranch property. Omni PGA Frisco opens to the public next month, but now it's open for booking. Right now, you can go to omnihotels.com forward slash golf to check out Omni PGA Frisco Resort. It's one of the most highly anticipated golf resorts opening, and it will be sun up to sundown golf. The property has it all. You've seen it in the film room that we had. I mean, there's a lot going on out there. They have two 18-hole top-notch courses. Field Ranch East, designed by Gil Hans. I don't know if you ever heard of him before. Field Ranch West, designed by Bo Welling. Don't know if you've ever heard of that guy before either. But the PGA District, they got a lot of things out there. And this is all the cool stuff. The Swing, it's a 10-hole par-3 course designed both by Bo and Gil. The Dance Floor, that's what they're calling their massive putting course, designed by Gil Hans. The Lounge by Topgolf, they literally have a Topgolf facility on site overlooking a massive driving range. They have the PGA Coaching Center and the Ice House Beer Garden. They got hitting bays up there. It's awesome beer garden uh, that I look forward to in November having plenty of little brewskis at. 
plus a brand new 500 room resort with 2,300 square foot, four bedroom ranch houses, four pools, a spa, dining options. There's something for absolutely everyone. If you want to book a trip now, please check them out at omnihotels.com forward slash NLU. If you use Maybe a few slash, discounts at that, uh, at exactly. that URL. Exactly. In the site of the NIT, we're, we're pumped and we're going to, we're going to be checking out some of these other properties around the country. So Omni doing some big things in the golf space. I love it. Once again, that's omnihotels.com forward slash NLU to check out. There might be something there waiting for you. All right, let's get KVV in here. Happy, happy, happy to be joined by Mr. KVV, man. We, we hear you on this podcast all the time. We're usually chopping it up about football, about doing perfect clubs, getting deep on movies, TVs, of that things. But now we're going to do a little bit of like a throwback, I guess, to is this your final thing that you did for ESPN? Yes, it is. Uh, it was the one thing kind of hanging over my head a little bit. Uh, I had started reporting on this uh, three years ago, and so this was finally bringing it into port. So. And what we're talking about is this amazing piece that you wrote at, you can find it at ESPN.com, titled Pain, Hope, Science, Collide as Athletes Turn to Magic Mushrooms. Now, there's also an E60 PC you can check out at ESPN Plus if you're a subscriber uh, in which you do a fantastic narration on. But I, I want to go back, I guess, to three years. And where did this come from? You know, how did you set about getting approvals for this? Kind of what's the whole backstory of of how this this piece came to be? Yeah. Uh, so as I often mention, perhaps uh, in a foolish way i played a couple years of college football at the university of montana up with montana was not very good was not didn't play very often i think two career tackles uh would be sort of my accumulation of stats one special teams one during a homecoming blowout 55 to 17 i think but a lot of my really good friends are still like people i met through playing football and one of my buddies uh, his name is adam boomer uh he was an all big sky linebacker he played in canada for two seasons before he blew out his knee pretty badly and kind of ended his career but um truly a great like one of the all-time great uh linebackers to play at the university of montana adam got uh really into kind of looking into alternative medicine uh stuff as he kind of was figuring out what he wanted to do with his life and his career his wife like tragically died of a brain aneurysm and left him as a sort of, you know, to be the solo parent for his four kids. And in figuring out kind of ways to sort of cope with not only the head trauma of getting, you know, probably dozens of concussions um, and the sort of emotional pain of having to sort of be a widow at, you know, 38, he ended up getting really interested in psychedelics and is now a licensed therapist in Montana to sort of help people use psychedelics to sort of treat some of this stuff. But this was when we started this uh, discussion, he and I, three years ago, he was just sort of getting into it uh, and doing research. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a ton about athletes who are doing this stuff kind of, you know, it's obviously illegal in the United States. Uh, but, you know, using it sort of as an underground kind of thing, uh, whether it's microdosing or whether it's, you know, taking full like psilocybin trips, uh, you should really look into this. This would be a really good story for ESPN. 
And so I started calling around uh, and I basically started with like the cannabis community because I figured like, you know, cannabis, in my opinion, is kind of where um, right now where psychedelics uh, will be in the future, like sort of seen as like, why was this, you know, outlawed for so long? Like it's, they're real like therapeutic purposes for this. Uh, but the sort of acceptance in society is kind of lagged behind a little bit. And so I talked to a lot of these cannabis guys and eventually they put me, one of them put me in touch with Riley Cote, who was an enforcer with the Philadelphia Flyers. And he had become a sort of the one of the most public advocates, I would say, for plant medicine and psilocybin. He was involved with an organization called Athletes for Care, which is mostly sort of about um, kind of advocating for legal cannabis uh, use. But Riley has sort of pivoted in a lot of ways to psychedelics being, you know, the thing that matters a lot to him. And so we just started talking. Uh, this was like right before COVID. And Riley and I kept in touch for a long time, uh, just, you know, checking in every now and then over text. And eventually, like, I went up and hung out with him and uh, and visited him basically in a, you know, like, socially distanced way, uh, outdoors and stuff, and, and chatted for, you know, a couple hours about this stuff. And ESPN was, was really interested in the story, really thought that it had potential, but it was sort of a time when I was like, okay, we weren't taking trips anywhere. We weren't green lighting, you know, big projects. We're trying to figure out like how much the pandemic was going to affect like our bottom line. And eventually Riley said, you know, Kev, we're going to go to Jamaica and have, um, I'm involved with this company called wake. We're going to go to this, uh, retreat basically in a, there's a bunch of athletes who were interested in a couple military vets and, you know, just some regular, um, people who are sort of interested in this stuff. And they all want to, um, I think they're willing if you're, if you're up for it, for ESPN to come along and sort of, you know, see it, experience it. And so <clears throat> I explained this to my bosses and one of my bosses, Chris Buckle fought really hard to basically get ESPN to sign off on it. And, um, ESPN E60 got involved. And, uh, so we took a, a crew. I'm going to hold you up there. Mm -hmm. Is this a difficult thing to sell an organization the size, not only of ESPN, but ultimately probably, you know, parent organization at Disney? It's a tough question. Like, I think the journalism at ESPN, the journalism people uh, are really passionate about doing good stories. Um, I think, you know, it, I don't want to say it was like an easy sell, but I was passionate enough about it uh, and advocated for it. And when people you can hear the passion in people's voices. Uh, they are willing to sort of fight for you. And so, um, you know, the, the editors involved in the project were like, you know, we really believe in this. I, it did have to go up pretty high level to get approval. And then that was just the beginning of sort of, you know, what it was going to look like before it, um, eventually got published. But, uh, yeah, there's I mean, a lot is, a lot has changed from now current day, 2023, mm -hmm. To, from 2020, when I'm sure you're doing these initial pitches and trying to get support. I mean, you talked about, like, you know, athletes in the past, and I think probably Ricky Williams is one of the primary ones who stands out that, like, people used to shit on all the time because they're like, oh, it's just this athlete who wants to get stoned all the time. Yeah. And, like, what what therapeutic, like, like what is he going through that he is saying that, like, marijuana or cannabis is helping him 
it, it like out this way. Yeah, I mean, you really have to sort of show the science behind it that's being, you know, been studied pretty significantly in Johns Hopkins for like 20 years and NYU and the various places. There's the Lieber Institute and in Baltimore and, you know, Shepherd Pratt. Luckily, I'm in sort of like the nexus of a lot of like major hospitals uh, and research institutions that are studying this stuff. And so I was able to kind of, you know, talk to some people there, reach out, get some kind of literature to sort of point to, you know, it's not like this stuff hadn't been covered you know, in society at all, like Michael Pollan is a pretty famous author, uh, and there'd been a Netflix documentary about the potential of this stuff. Um, but with athletes, it had never really been featured. And so I thought, you know, this is a really good chance to kind of help mainstream this issue. And uh, so just slowly over time, like, you know, being more and more convincing, like this is this is a real thing. And eventually, someone's going to do this story. So it really probably ought to be us, but you know, with any corporation, like part of what the story dives into is like this idea that in 1970, you know, psychedelic mushrooms were classified as on the same level as cocaine or heroin and how the Nixon administration admitted years later that that was entirely a political thing. They were just trying to demonize hippies that were part of the sort of hippie movement and make it, you know, a political win for them. And so that stigma still exists today. Even, you know, you see, you, I look in my Twitter mentions when this story came out and there were people like, oh, athletes just want to get high. Why don't you shut up and whatever. Man, it's not that at all. <laughs> and trust me, I've seen it up close uh, and experienced it. It's not uh, like you're something that you're doing just for an entertainment. Like there is, you can use psilocybin for like a party experience. Uh, but this is a very focused therapeutic, deep, sort of thoughtful session. So Right, definitely. The the recreational side, which there are lots of people who have been doing that for, for years and years and years and years, decades going back. But what we're specifically talking about here is the therapeutic aspects and of what it provides and really the trying to figure out what is going on in somebody's brain and piecing pieces back together, which is fascinating. This is a, a huge topic, obviously, in the veteran community as we deal with, with TBIs, PTSD, uh, and things of that sort. And, and when you first told me about this, I was so jacked for you to go do this and, and cover it and, and bring it to you know hundreds of thousands of or millions of people's eyes to see what benefits there actually are. Prior to you going down there, and obviously you're gonna you get approval from ESPN to go down. What was your experience with mushrooms, with cannabis, with any sort of uh, medicinal purposes? Almost none. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I had probably, you know, smoked cannabis three, four times in my life. Uh, take, but you did not inhale. Uh, I did not inhale. <laughs> Someday I'll tell the story of when I took edibles on a golf trip and uh, had like <laughs> one of the worst nine holes experiences of my life. Uh, but that's Which I will say this, knowing from a guy from Missoula, Montana, that those are some low numbers. Very low. Missoula is, is known to be the, the dankiest of the dank yeah. places in Montana. You know, for a long time, like the kids that I was friends with in high school were pretty... Um, straight arrow, like, you know, I didn't even really drink until like I was, uh, probably senior in high school, kind of after football was over and was like, all right, now I can cut loose a little bit. Weed never really appealed to me. Um, just cause I'm, 
not a smoker at all. And that back then there was no other way to sort of uh, ingest it. And I just, I think I got hung up. I remember being sort of like condescending once to my parents about like, oh, I'd never do that. People who were smoke weed are losers. And my mom was like, yeah, like your dad and I smoked like marijuana in college. And I was like, <laughs> oh, well, then I feel like an ass uh, now. But, you know, a couple times here and there in college, like nothing too significant. But more honestly, like part of I the reason I felt like I was a good uh, person for this is because I did kind of grow up sort of more, you know, straight arrow. And I came into it a little bit as like open-minded, but also like as a skeptic of like, all right, like convince me that this is a real thing. And this is not just a sort of, you know, what they call drug tourism, uh, where you kind of, you know, people go to do, you know, 5-MeO-DMT or ayahuasca or whatever, like <clears throat> I wanted to sort of understand what the actual therapeutic value in it was. And by the end of it, it came away sort of blown away and, and being really convinced of, you know, that, that it has a tremendous potential for people to, you know, it isn't going to fix your problems right away. Like it isn't a magic sort of wand, but it can really help people break out of terrible cycles of depression and anxiety and addiction and help them kind of move forward in a lot of ways with stuff they've struggled with for a long time. So KV, I got a question. What, what piece of this do you think is, was the most important? Like, is it the, the magic mushrooms piece or is it the, the, the retreat piece? I honestly think that they have to kind of work together. I mean, you could, do this by yourself and you could, you know, sort of be really mindful about it and say like, look, I can't afford to go on some retreat to Jamaica. And so, but I have, you know, a person who's going to be able to give me this and you could, you know, definitely benefit it from it in some ways. But a lot of, I think what you feel as part of it is like the, the openness and the bonding with other people and the willingness to be vulnerable and to sort of let your, your heart open and your guard down, uh, in ways that you didn't expect to. I mean, I, you know, just in being there witnessing these people who came together as like complete strangers and by the end they're hugging each other and being like, man, I love you. Like, I really, I really feel connected to you because I feel like you were vulnerable in a way that, you know, forced me to be vulnerable. Like all of that matters. And it's not like, you know, the thing I went to, there's not like there's a trained psychotherapist there and they're kind of grilling you and making you sort of open up, but you're, it puts you in a headspace where you're willing to sort of talk about what you felt and experienced. I think what you saw is sort of, I wouldn't categorize it like that because it's all, you know, feeling based and emotional based inside your own head. Uh, and, you know, it just sort of activates parts of your brain that are often closed off by your own desire to be safe and desire to protect yourself from feeling certain things. And so I, there are people, Justin Renfro is one of the people in the piece, love Justin, like he's a, he's a, he played the University of Miami. He played for the Seahawks for a bit. He bounced around the NFL and then he went to Canada and has played there almost a decade. And Justin was pretty open about, you know, I've, I've used uh, psychedelics for pain management for a long time. And I, you know, basically would like cook with them and I would just kind of like use them as a daily part of my experience. But even he, who was like, I would say a pretty veteran psychedelics, you know, user and believer f had this tremendous like revelation when we were in Jamaica of like, 
you know, it's okay if I walk away from football and focus on my cooking show and let go of my grandmother, who was the person who came with me on all my recruiting trips, because I'm more than just a football player. I don't have to like hang on to that stuff. And so I think that was like evidence of like, this is really, you know, you feel connected to other people in this circle and you want to open up and talk about it after you experience it. So, so you went down there to report on this. For, I'm guessing one first session, you're kind of, you're not on mushrooms. You're watching people on mushrooms, which is probably interesting to say the least. At what point do you, when did you get curious? I feel like, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, KVV took mushrooms, right? So, but like, I don't think you went down there with the intention to uh, take part in the, uh, in, in the retreat. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Went down there to sort of thinking, I'm going to be the totally objective third-party reporter. I'm the professional yeah, journalist exactly. here, and I'm going to do my part to tell this story. What I would say is, you know, we spent like about a week down there, and they were very strict about, like, there's no alcohol involved here. We're, we're here as a sort of therapeutic thing. And ESPN is going to be here, but if you ever feel, I said, said to the athletes over and over, if you ever feel uncomfortable, just tell us, like, you need some time and we'll, we'll take the cameras away or, you know, I, will, I won't ask questions or I'll step away or whatever. And over the course of the week, you know, we just sat around and talked uh, a lot of different ways. We took, took a walk down to uh, this river, kind of, we were up in the kind of the mountains in Jamaica and... And we go to this river and it's like all these athletes are like just jumping in. And I was like, I'm, I'm not usually like a, you know, I was thinking, oh, God, is there snakes in this river or whatever? And I was like, no, what? You got it. You're in Jamaica. You got to just show people that you're if you want to earn their trust, you got to show them that you're sort of with them in the sense. So I like, you know, stripped off my shirt and just jumped in the river with them. And we're standing there in the river and I'm talking to one of the uh, the one guy who ended up really having sort of a a bond with his name is Chris. And he's talking about, you know, he'd been in, I think 18 different deployments. Uh, and I said, you know, Oh, what's the most memorable place you were? And he was like, well, you know, I was in Afghanistan when, you know, we, uh, there was a, you know, a helicopter crash and we lost like 30 guys. And he's like, that's the kind of shit you don't forget. And I was like, wow, like, uh, okay. And so he and I just kind of started talking and, you know, he told me about, how psychedelics had kind of saved his life, how he was, you know, struggling with alcohol and anxiety. And he was thinking about taking his own life. And he, you know, went through, there's a, a super powerful psychedelic called Ibogaine. Uh, that's like, it only has to be administrated by administered by medical professionals because it's like a 10 or 15 hour, uh, sort of trip. And, but it's like, it has, you know, tremendous therapeutic potential in it. He had sort of lost hearing in one of his ears from, you know, uh, sort of a, I think it was an explosion or something. And his hearing came back and one of his eyes was permanently dilated. And that sort of, you know, stopped his eyes sort of returned to normal. And, you know, you could say, I'm sure some medical people say, well, maybe it's a placebo effect or whatever, but you know, there's a lot of belief that this kind of stuff can really make a huge difference in how the brain sort of was wired and functioned and a lot of science to support, you know, that it, it can restore some of the pathways in your brain that have been damaged. And so he and I talked and, you know, we, I sort of got more and more bonded to some of the other people there. And 
every time we sat down one of these people on camera, they were just so open and honest and interesting. And I couldn't help but feel like, man, like this is incredible. Like, I think, you know, some of this is like my hopefully like skills as an interviewer, but some of it was the mushrooms obviously. And, and they, you know, this was like two, three days after they had been on their first trip when we first started sitting down and interviewing them. And all of them were so open. They kind of like cried during the interviews and not in like a, I'm devastated kind of way, like, but in like, I'm feeling things that I haven't felt ever before. And so that really kind of like made me think like, man, I kept asking the, the athletes, uh, you know, what is it like? And I remember Mike Lee, one of the, he's a, you know, really successful boxer who's featured in the piece. And he said, you know, Kev, it's, it's not something that you can really describe. It's just something that you have to experience. And so Riley is a really interesting sort of spiritual dude. You know, he was an enforcer for the flyers for four years and it was just basically his job to just beat on people and get beat on. And he had sort of said, you know, if you're, if you're ever feeling open to this, like, you know, feel free to, to let us know. And, and so over the course of, you know, the, the week, you know, I, I just sort of had just churning around in my mind of like, ah, oh, you know, you shouldn't do this. And then I was like, well, of course you would do this. Like if you were writing this piece for, I don't know, Rolling Stone or something like that would be like the expectation you would do. And I thought, eh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's sort of the right choice in the end. There was this really moving moment the night we were there near the end. And it was after the second sort of psilocybin ceremony. And one of the, the people there who was, he'd been an amateur boxer for a long time. He was struggling with, I wouldn't say it was like a, a bad trip, but like a lot of things, what you see in these things is like people, they either, you can't go into it with like expectations. You have to understand that like part of what this stuff does is it, it you have to serve what they call surrender to it. So like, if you guys ever experienced this in your life, I would say like, don't fight wherever this medicine is taking you. You have to kind of just let yourself sink into it. And this one person, I won't use his name because it didn't end up being the story, but he had sort of like frustrations that he it didn't give him what his expectations were. And he was sort of hopeful that he, he could go deeper and kind of dig up some stuff. And the, the shaman who had was sort of led the ceremony, she hung out with us there. She was, you know, a native Jamaican and had sort of been trained in this practice and stuff. This was kind of like late at night and she asked him, you know, what, how are you feeling uh, right now? This is probably like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And he's like, I'm feeling confused. And she was like, that's good. That's good to feel something like that. And he just started like sobbing, like, right. You know, we're, all of us are sort of sitting around on the porch and he just started sobbing. And she kind of put, it honestly is the most surreal thing I've ever seen in my life. Like I, I legitimately have a hard time describing this because it was almost like Jedi magic that she was using, but it was Reiki, which is, you know, the practice of like using force, you know, with your mind or whatever. And she started singing this song, I release control. And essentially like what she described is that she moved the energy in him aside so that other uh, good energy could sort of enter his body and all of us, I mean, there's probably 10 of us sitting around the circle watching this unfold. And like, he slowly like stopped crying and was like, wow, like, I don't know what you did, but 
whatever it was, like it allowed me to like get through that and process it. And I don't think I would have been able to sleep tonight if you hadn't, whatever. And I remember the producer and I were looking at each other like, holy shit. Like, what did we just witness? And I was like, this is something like I, I would be so if you described it to me, like if someone had if one of you guys had described that to me witnessing in it, I would have been like, this is super corny, man. Like, what are you talking about? But witnessing it, I was like, wow, like that was really moving and really powerful. And the guy woke up the next day and was like, I feel really like the mushrooms took me exactly where I, I wanted to or exactly where I needed to go. And I wasn't willing to accept it. And now like I'm really, and I, I remember I talked to him probably three months after and he was like, I haven't had a drink since I feel so much better spiritually. Like I, I did a 5-MeO DMT experience and helped me like even sort out more stuff. And I think that was the moment where I was like, wow, like I think that, you know, it's maybe important to sort of experience this for part of the story. Well, I think the piece you do a great job of describing it from a, objective perspective but where did where did the the trip leave you afterwards what did you work out and what are you willing to share I yeah guess? take that question wherever you yeah. want because what you're what you're describing is not I, I think people a lot of times there's like this bag stigma of like like herd mentality or being part of the herd but really what you're describing is like going back to like tribal roots and for this week in time you were a part of this tribe and you were down there doing your job and part of it is obviously like building rapport and trying to develop relationships with people who you are trying to tell their stories like I, I highlight their experiences for this piece you're writing but ultimately in order to do that like you also need to be a tribesman and you need to fit in and what you tend to see over time is that it's natural to start to to mirror people's experiences and reactions and again like i don't know how much you want to unpack there but like everybody has trauma and your trauma is not just because you played football the the vast majority of your you know time as a young adult it's other things too and i wonder like when you are going through your decision making process and you're clearly weighing some heavy shit that's happened in your adult life. And you're seeing people have this release. And you turn that corner and you realize, you know what? This is probably for me too. Yeah. I think it's it's all in what you make of it, right? I, you know, so we wrapped up all our reporting. We essentially wrapped the story. And I was like, okay, like I do think uh, it would be worth experiencing this. I think that that would be, give me a greater understanding of, you know, this kind of thing. Still for your, your journalistic understanding or are you seeking personal development, healing, whatever you want to I say? I think probably a little bit of both. I, I'm going to sort of say that I live, have lived a fairly privileged uh, existence. You know, I, I might have, you know, some traumas, uh, in my life. Um, but I wouldn't say like, I felt like I was suffering in a lot of ways, um, going into this, like I needed to unpack stuff, but like I have anxieties like anybody. And so I remember, you know, sitting down and it's, it's, you're part of a larger circle of people, uh, and you feel like a connection 
what is the thing? I mean, I talked about my wife about it before I did it. I was like, you know, do you think this is a a good idea? And she's a, you know, very non-religious, but spiritual person grew up in New Mexico, uh, you know, feels, you know, a connection to, you know, Native American culture because she's Native American and was not really raised that way, but she's, you know, did one of those 23 and me things and she's, she didn't look like a white person, you know, so yeah, <laughs> essentially. She's, she's not, she's not Warren. She's closer, yeah. closer to real. So she, you know, she was like encouraging me, like, you know, I think do what's in your heart. And, you know, like I had really, uh, as Neil knows, like we had talked, a, you know, probably three months before this about like my, my contract is up at the end of this year. Like, I think I might like to explore like, you know, leaving ESPN and coming to NLU. And so I had, was struggling with that decision of like the thing that I wanted by the time I was 20, uh, here at, you know, 43, I was sort of mulling, walking away from, and what did that mean for my identity? And what did that mean for my self-worth? Uh, and, you know, could I, you know, chase something that I thought would bring me joy and so part of that was stuff that I probably knew was going to come up in this. And so I laid down and was part of this, uh, you know, thing. You, you take the, the psilocybin, which is sort of ground up into, you know, a powder, and then they mix it with, uh, you know, juice, whether it's orange juice or papaya juice or pineapple juice. And um, it's just to kind of help it kind of go down easier. You know, you don't want to be like spoon feeding like powder and <laughs> down your throat. Mushrooms taste like shit. <laughs> this is very true. And it doesn't taste great, but the juice kind of masks it in the sense of it's fine. And you, then you kind of lay there for 45 minutes to an hour. And I was sort of thinking like, ah, I guess this thing didn't work. Like, you know, it just like, I, I, maybe I'm, you know, too big of a guy. They didn't give me a big, big enough dose. Like, I'm sure it'll be great, but I'll might just fall asleep here or whatever. Are doses calculated based off of like I believe so. BMI? I believe that they're, you know, uh, but they didn't do like a, I mean, they were, it wasn't like they were going to give like a first time user, like a big ass dose, you know, like I, uh, <clears throat> I might weigh the same as like, you know, Justin Renfro or whatever, but I don't think he's a regular psilocybin user. And so they weren't going to give you know the same to him and me, but, um, they tell you like during, if you, if you feel like you needed like a booster shot you can raise your hand uh, at some point and kind of go deeper into the, you know, experience. And so you kind of lay there and you're sort of, you're, what's, what's interesting is you're really hyper aware and you're starting to feel like the connection to the universe, right? Or the jungle, you're hearing all kinds of sounds and there's like a local musician that they've hired. Uh, you can see it briefly in the E60 clip. And at some point, like you, you start to f see, you know how like when you close your eyes and you can sort of see like little, you know, flares, whatever on the inside of your eyelids, essentially, you're still seeing those, but they start to kind of like to light up sort of almost like, you know, little neon flares or whatever. <clears throat> and for me, I'm sure everybody's experience is different, but for me, it felt like I was sort of slowly sinking into the ocean uh, or into like a cave and sort of floating through it and the music would make uh like the whether it's the drum beats or the sort of you know chimes would make these little things kind of fire uh more and so i, I remember kind of laughing to myself and thinking like 
oh, I finally understand like every Pink Floyd sort of poster that I saw. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, it's not to me that I would sort of describe it as emotional, not visual. And so what happened in my experience was these sort of things with, with colors and emotions would sort of float by me and they, none of it was sort of verbal, but it was all like kind of, you know, this emotional connection you had to someone. And some of it was, you know, me asking for forgiveness from, you know, girls that I'd broken up with or, you know, people who I had wronged. And some of it was come, people coming to me to ask for forgiveness. And, you know, it was my ex-wife and I sort of agreeing to like be good parents for our kids. And, you know, my kids were in it and, you know, there were people from no laying up in it being like, come on, Kev, like, come do this, come join us. Like, let's, let's ride, let's make this shit happen. And, you know, there were people from ESPN who I was feeling like I might be letting down by leaving saying, you know, you got to do what's in your heart. And my parents were in it and my grandparents were in it and all these sort of people, you know, came and went sort of slowly over the course of four hours and sort of had this, you know, connection with me. And I felt like, I remember feeling this, the person next to me was sort of, I could tell struggling with their experience, whether they were, uh, you know, I think they felt a little guilty about doing this on this, this trip or whatever. And so I remember feeling like I was like sending him like blasts of energy, you know, and like, you're going to be okay. Like you're a good dad. You're a good person. Don't feel bad about, you know, doing this. And, you know, at, I had sort of asked, I was, you know, I was scared and I had sort of asked, uh, prior to the thing, I was like, God, is this, what is it going to be like if I have a freak out and like, you know, all the kind of silly hangups that are probably driven by, media narratives like about this stuff forever. And I was thinking like, what if I happens, I'm going to run through the woods and fall off a cliff or, you know, stupid shit like that. And so I'd sort of asked Riley and Chris, this, you know, Navy SEAL veteran, can you kind of look after me and, and make sure that I don't, you know, do something stupid. And they were like, of course. And so like Riley like sat like with his back to a tree the whole, during the whole ceremony, like, like a Jedi, just sort of like watching over all of us. But Chris, like joined in <clears throat> the ceremony with like a small dose. And I remember I got up at one point and I was like, I, I want to kind of just feel the wind in my, you know, on my neck and my head and, and feel every follicle of my being sort of, you know, connected to the energy of the universe. And I, I stood up and I remember Chris, he came like across the circle and he like embraced me and we were sort of like hugging in the middle of the, in the middle of the freaking Jamaican jungle. And I was like, wow, like what a, what a fascinating job I have that it has brought me to the middle of the jungle in Jamaica where I am like hugging a Navy SEAL uh, guy who's been through the depths of hell of war in a lot of different countries and a lot of different places. And we are bonded in this moment where we're like, feeling this connection to one another of like, we, we learned to sort of let go of some things that we're sort of, you know, hanging on to. And it was really, really meaningful and moving. Uh, and, you know, I remember at one point, like I've, I was feeling like I had sort of seen everybody in my, you know, 
trip or journey, whatever, except for my grandfather on my mom's side. And as, as I was sort of slowly coming out of, you know, feeling the effects of this stuff, I remember kind of looking up into the trees and feeling like that tree was like, that had the presence of my grandfather in it and feeling really like completed by that of like, okay, like I've, uh, I've connected and, and communicated with everybody that I hoped to. And maybe, you know, maybe that last part was like the wanting of like to see my grandfather instead of like just letting it sort of occur. Um, and I think like, you know, that's, if you've never experienced this, some, some of that might sound like really woo woo and sort of, you know, jokey and hippie-ish, but I think anybody who actually had experienced something like that in a mindful way would sort of understand like, yeah, it's like truly kind of moving. And for what, what we realized, you know, and from a reporting aspect of this stuff, I mean, one of the most moving people in the whole story is Steve Downey, this hockey player who played for the Flyers and a bunch of other teams. And Steve was really struggling going into this. You know, he felt like he was, you know, had substance abuse issues and painkiller issues and he was depressed and he didn't want to leave like his house. He just kind of laid there in dark rooms. He'd had a bunch of concussions and <clears throat> Steve really struggled with to explain, you know, to verbalize what, what was sort of haunting him in a lot of ways. And during the, what they call integration, the, the session afterwards where we talk about stuff, he really, you know, he opened up, he cried, he talked a lot about how he realized he wanted to stick around. He wanted to be a better dad for his kids. He, um, he felt like for the first time it was okay to let go of like some of the, you know, things that had haunted him. And, and he was, his dad had died when he was eight years old while taking him to hockey practice. And so he was like, I saw my dad, I talked to my dad, I apologized to everybody that I could think of and it felt good. And I don't see how you could witness that and not think like this isn't like a really important, powerful thing. I mean, there, you know, I, I Riley is a big guy who sort of feels like, you know, the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry is like blocking this stuff. And it's sort of, you know, it's getting us hooked on this shit. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, man, like I've heard this kind of stuff before. By the end of it, I was like, man, I think, I think I'm, I'm there. Like, I believe that, you know, a lot of this shit really is kind of, um, potentially really helpful. And a lot of, you know, a lot of industries and companies are wanting to prevent it because man, if you're, if you can kick uh, an addiction to opioids by using this stuff, then a lot of people are making a lot less money if, you know, and that's, it sounds fucking conspiratorial, but no, it's, it's so fucking, fucking true. true. I mean, man. you read about the Sackler family and all that shit and you, you know, you realize like how effed up it is that opioids have sort of like plagued, you know, our country. I mean, that's the real freaking drug war and it's all legal. Uh, and it's just so frustrating to see potential ways to sort of kick that and be free of it kind of blocked because people are saying, I mean, it, look, there has to be regulations. It has to take time. I, I am a big believer in the guided aspect of this stuff so that it's not just, and, and look, there's a lot of people who say, and I think there's a lot of important science in our piece that Kaiser health news helped us with is like, Hey, you know, there's a lot of for-profit companies that want to get in on this stuff and they're going to sort of, For sure. You know, it's just going to be a different kind of like seeking profits and stuff, maybe. But I think that the a lot of the people right now who are involved in it really feel like it could do some real good. I, maybe they're trying to get rich, but I also think they're really trying to help people. 
And well, for that, I'll say like, I, you know, after reading the piece and then watching it on E60, like I obviously reached out to Wake Network and, and applied. And I told you guys this already, but on their website, if you look at the cost, I mean, it's $4,500 to go to one of the retreats in Jamaica. There's some additional, if you want different housing and boarding options of $4,500 to take part of this experience. It obviously is very, very therapeutic. Or on the other hand, I can go to a six hour fucking Tony Robbins seminar and pay $10,000 for somebody to tell me how bad like I suck and how much of a God he is. So where do you think like my overall investment for the rest of my life is going to be yeah. like better served yeah. at? And I, honestly, right. Going, going, trying to fix some trauma and to fucking like heal wounds and to get me you know or, i, I or feel fine now but like v the next, seminar and, and yeah right getting your fucking hustle on like what do you like those are the people that i see and you're right this this industry is very very young right now and eventually i see stuff like that happening but at the end of the day i mean i'll, I'll say this like i i still rely on government provided fucking health care which i understand is a benefit that i have but when I go to a VA appointment and I do almost monthly VA appointments for my PTSD and the number one thing, instead of going to therapy, they're trying to give me more pills. It's fucked. Yeah. It is. And like nobody is fixing anything. Yep. They're masking mm -hmm. things. And it would do so much, I think, net positive good if like you could get someone to sort of like government, the Veterans Affairs ought to pick up the cost of this, right? To, to go to some of these yeah. treatments. There would be, I'm sure, politicians on both sides who would say, that's bullshit. We're not going to pay veterans to get high, whatever. And that's part of the stigma that's sort of trying to sort of break down. One of the reasons I... Yeah, that's why we have a fucking 86-year-old president in the United States. And the vast majority of like our elected representatives are like the medium age of like 72 years old. Okay? The same boomers that are out there who believe everything that they were told in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, that think that these people are Satan coming through their rock and roll music. All right? Get, like, get, all that shit's got to go away if people, like, if you can't stop, take a look around you and, and look at your peer group for one second and, and look at them and realize, man, we're a bunch of fucked up people. And this is, this is not just an issue, like, in the United States, it's happening all over the world. But then you go to Europe, and we spent last summer in, in across Scandinavia, or you go spend a fucking week in Italy, where people are eating fresh fucking food from their pro from their grocery store because it's coming straight from a market. Everything is is raised in that ground. Their beef is produced from that soil. There's not all these crazy additives, and you don't have to add prebiotics and postbiotics and fucking daily vitamins to everything in order just to rebalance yourself. Like we're so far out of whack. And if there's one thing that's going to help people, like I don't understand why our government is the one that is putting this massive roadblock in the way until you realize because it's about finance. And you like, when we sit here, I can be self-aware enough and say this, like there's people probably listening, be like, oh, there's a bunch of podcast bros are talking about natural medicine and stuff. Okay, like, but like, there's some real validity to it, and part of the reason that I wanted to do this story and do it as a part of ESPN was mainstreaming these ideas and like bringing them to an audience that would naturally reject them. I think is important to the sort of evolution of this stuff, and you know, ESPN was really good about 
all right, we have to like have science in this. We have to have skeptics. We have to understand like, are there control groups? Like, are there, you know, what is the sort of science behind it? And to be honest, when you look into the science behind it, all the people who study it or 95% of the people who study it are like, look, we don't know exactly that it's going to work for everyone, but for most people who do it, there are real noticeable benefits to particularly like anxiety, depression, addiction. Well, I think there's a, there's an interesting, this is an tr- interesting trio. You could put me in the podcast bro segment. Like, listen, I have had nothing but good experiences with psychedelics, but more socially. But some of the most formidable experiences in my life was I went to a Catholic high school and every year you would go on a, basically a retreat with your, you know, your class or whatever. And the, the simplicity of going off onto like a, a farm or whatever, and you'd go like sit, sit, you know, they'd send you out to like sit in the, in the woods basically and just hang out as like a high schooler. And you're like, this is stupid. And then there was one retreat where everybody would write letters, like all your friends would like write letters and you would just read like really nice things from friends and family. And that, that was so impactful for me. But then once you get older, you get more scar tissue where it's harder to put yourself in that mindset to be able to like accept that stuff. Cell phones, there's a lot. So you go on vacation now. It's hard to get off your phone, right? So this idea of a retreat and then using a tool like a psychedelic to like get yourself out of your standard mind frame can be so beneficial and so like effective. And, and I don't see that part. Like I'm, I, I don't know anything about the science of it. I think it's very simple. It's like, it's a tool to get you to think from a different angle, a different perspective to see something differently. That's how I see it. I mean, Cody, you're coming at it from like, like I'm almost feel guilty. I'm fascinated. I looked up the wake network too. Like I want to do one, but I feel guilty because I don't feel like I have the trauma. No, right. You're, like you're going to go be my fucking ranger buddy, bro. But I'm curious. Well, a question I have for you, KVV, is do you think that there needs to be, I think another piece of this is almost being a stranger, being in that group and not knowing anybody else there would allow the vulnerability. Not that Cody, like you and I could go and we wouldn't be vulnerable, but that would be an addict dynamic of like, well, we work together. We spent a lot of time together. Like, would that prevent you be, from being open? Or would it be better if you went on one and I went on another one and you're just like, you're able to share with strangers sometimes more than you can with people that, yeah. you know, you're close to. I think that what we realized is, I mean, basically a bunch of the people there did have someone who was sort of had led them there. So like Riley and Steve, like they had been friends through their hockey career. And Mike, one of um, one of the people who encouraged him, the boxer, to come was his childhood friend, Ryan, who ended up being like, a, he's a doctor who works with the Wake Network. And the military veteran, Chris, he had brought someone who was, had been his high school wrestling coach. And so I think it actually is beneficial because it's like you have that one person there who you're sort of like can lean on, but then you're sort of opening up to other people. And I mean, I didn't know, I wasn't close to anybody who was there and I ended up sort of feeling like, wow, this was like a you know transformative experience and I feel you know, a, a little bit of a bond with everybody here uh, that I'll, honestly, even if I never see them again, I'll feel something moving. I think it's all in kind of what you are willing to make it. This is KVV going down there with, a, the, with the purpose of going down there for work. If, if we sign KVV up for this, like I don't think KVV is signing up, signing up for a random retreat to go alone to Jamaica. Probably not. Yeah. Like I, it, I kind of look at it the same boat where like, sometimes like, I think it's cool to go check out a movie by yourself because it's like, you want to take in this movie. 
I think sometimes it's like a little weird when people are like, oh, I went to that concert by myself. Sure. Or the people That's who are fair. like, I'm going to Bandon by myself. I'm like, well, that kind of like, well, but you're like, not getting like, like I, that I give experience. like Randy, Randy a ton of credit. He went and did a silent retreat earlier this year on his own. Right. Yeah. And with I, the intent of being like alone, though. I think yeah, what, true. We're, what, we're, what I'm trying to get this to is here different. is that this is truly like a tribal group effort. This is your, it's group yoga, it's group, uh, I, I don't want to say therapy, but, but spoken words, you're sharing your, your feelings and your experiences in a, a, a tribe. And I think that's the difference I think between KVV going to Jamaica and Randy going to a cabin up in the mountains for, you know, 24 hours. I think hours. there are like, you can look at it two different ways. And I think both are beneficial. Like, I mean, golf has been hugely therapeutic for me. Like when I, you know, my wife and I got divorced, like I played by myself golf, like, every single week just to sort of sort through some of my like heartbreak and disappointment. And I would just walk. It would just like, it was a thing that I could do to just get out of my own like cycles of, of hurt and disappointment. And well, I'll tell you this. It, the reason why you're doing that is because in the in the year 2023, most adults just don't go outside. Yep. Uh, we are fucking slaves to our keyboards, yep. to our phones and to our automobiles. Totally. But that was hugely beneficial to me. But also like playing golf with my friends was hugely beneficial. They were beneficial in different ways. And I got different things out of it. And if forced to choose, like I would probably like would always choose my friends. But also, like, I still feel like I get something out of it every time I'm playing by myself. It's just a sort of like, it's less about the golf and more about the thinking of, like, all right, what am I, what am I working on in my own head these days that I want to sort of process? And so I think, like, whatever you ended up choosing, if you ended up doing this, and Neil, I think you made an interesting point of like, well, I don't feel like I have like the traumas, you know, that's okay. Like, you know, what Cody has been through obviously is like very different than what you and I have been through. But your, feelings and your emotions and things that you have to process are just as real as just as important to you in your own sort of way that you're going to figure out the person that you want to be. So whether it's like, you know, feelings of disappointment or feelings of like ambition or feelings of things that people you've let down or people that have let you down, some of that like could come up. Some of that could really, you know, it could teach you. I mean, I'm one of the people there was like, I realized when I was in this that I want to have kids. I told, I called my wife afterwards the next morning and was like, I think I'm ready to be a dad as I've, I helped me process some stuff. And so things like that can sort of, you know, that aren't traumatic things, but are sort of like things where you're, you're interested in moving forward in your life that can surface too. And I think, you know, as many times as Riley had sort of used psychedelics and stuff, he was still kind of, you know, coming up with new sort of things and so processing stuff about his own marriage and his own, like, you know, ability as a dad and it just was really moving to sort of see all that unpacked and uh, you know i think i talked to mike uh likely right before the story ran and i was sort of saying you know we're going to include this stuff he had he had thought and this it's the lead of the story he was driving down the road in chicago it was like right before one of his last fights and he was in his porsche and he was doing like 140 on the chicago freeway and he said i had a brief moment where and he, he is just so moving in the in the piece because he sort of looks into the camera and he's like, you know what, fuck it. I've never told anybody this, but I'm going to share it now. And he's like, I thought for a second about just yanking the, steer, the steering wheel into the median and just ending it. 
And he, and I, so I said, you know, when I talked to him, I was like, that's going to probably be in the lead of the story. I just want to make sure you're okay with that. And he's like, you know what? I'm scared and I'm anxious about that. And I was, you know, open in that moment. And he was like, but I know that this is going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. So leave it in there. Like, let's go, let's do it. And you know, he, he felt really good about the story after it ran. He was like, you know what? I know it is going to make a difference. And I've had people already reach out to me and stuff. And so, you know, there's a moment of like openness and it, it doesn't linger forever, but the science will show like even months after one dose of this stuff, you can sort of feel differently and feel a change. I mean, Steve Downey, who'd been in like the depths of like hell and depression, his family noticed a change immediately. Now Steve is like, he runs a snowmobile camp up, you know, in Northern Ontario and he's, he's, you know, getting involved in his kids hockey and stuff. And it's like, Riley said, you know, he just seems like a, a lot, you know, it's not, he's not fixed. He still has concussion issues, but it's just dramatically different in terms of like how his overall play, it allowed him to, Steve's process was like, it gave me clarity and helped me kind of figure out a roadmap for what I wanted next in my life, which I think is like pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, I, I really like the, uh, the reason this is so attractive to me, I think, is because I, I mentioned, I've, I think I've experienced what a, a, well-executed retreat can do for you and my experience like with psychedelics with my friends has been nothing but but good for the most part but you know i probably haven't you know haven't i haven't looked peered over the edge with like doing doing too many if that makes sense but the idea of combining those two tools together is like i feel like i don't think i could go on a retreat right now it would it would be a lot of work for me to get out of the mindset and and i think some people might look at this as bad. Oh, you don't want to do the work. It's like, no, but I need, I need a catalyst to get me there to make, to help me think differently. And in the right environment, that's where it feels very attractive. Like, oh my God, yes. I would love to go and just get out of my own head for three, four days and, and think a little different because I've, you know, it, it's, it's helped me in the past. So I'm going to use some of the experiences in my therapist. Uh, says to me all the time is that Neil, I, I hear what you're saying. I recognize what you're saying. And I think one of the issues when we talk about self help or your mental well being and mental wellness is that majority of people, the first thing they do when they have a thought of seeking help or a potential to go do something that they could have immense positive and beneficial things to you is that we're so used to comparing ourselves to others and that we use that to suppress that feeling because, Oh, well, I'm not as bad off as whoever else. I'm not as bad off as, as Chris in the story, who's a, you know, gold squadron operator at seal team six, like his trauma is a hell of a lot different than mine. And he needs to go do that. Cause if I go, I might be taking a spot away from somebody else who might, who, who honestly needs it. And that's like the worst thing that you could, that you could do because it doesn't matter. Like your trauma is your own trauma and your things that you're trying to work through or like at your own level and, and comparing those to other people is just, just as bad as when you say, well, I can't do it right now. And I'm just going to cope with what I have going on. And we're just going to continue. We'll, we'll just reestablish that partition in our brain, put it to the side and say, all right, we're moving on. And it's still there. That's just not going anywhere. And it doesn't matter if it truly is trauma or injury or 
or whatever else it possibly is, that shit just stays with you until you figure out a way to unpack it. In the last year, one of the most beneficial 24 hours, I know for a fact in the last year of my life, and I could probably say within the last 10 years of my life, is you, TC, Solly, and myself stayed in a fucking tent on the beach in Visby. And the reason why that tent experience will stick out to me for the rest of my life is not because we're on a t- like sleeping in a tent, but it was the fact that we were somewhere exploring somebody something new together as a tribe. We were we were sleeping in this tent together as a tribe. There was the four of us in there, and no matter what was going to happen, we were there together. And I got it. We played golf and we're there for for different reasons than most people normally would. But one of the best conversations that Solly and I have had in my entire friendship with him happened on that beach because we were there in that moment together with the sunset and the waves and talking about our relationships and potentially being a new dad and everything else that's going on. And if we were not in that location with everything else put to the side, all the distractions, no fucking cell phones, nothing else, just living in that moment, that would have never happened. Now, think if we could go back and do that on some fucking mushrooms, man. (laughs) Sign me the fuck up. I think like the, the willingness for men to like talk to each other is such an underrated important part of mental health, right? Like, and so many people have a block about being vulnerable. And I think my, if I have one sort of like superpower as a journalist, it's like, I don't really have hangups about being vulnerable. Like I will tell people the shit that I've been through, or I will sit and cry with them or I'll, you know, and not in a fake way. Like that's just kind of who I am. And one of the things I like best about golf trips is not the golf. It's the sort of like moments where you're sitting around the campfire and you're really getting getting real. And I think like this is a way to open up in that sense of like to feel like, all right, I'm going to share this connection with other people. And, you know, I really do think like it's, it's easy to dismiss it if you're on the outside of it and kind of chuckle at it and like, oh, a bunch of dudes getting high and talking about, you know, but you know what, like, dudes need to talk about shit. Dudes need to freaking like really open up to each other and be vulnerable because the alternative, we've seen what the alternative does. It's a lot of anger. It's a lot of isolation. It's a lot of medicating, you know, and over-medicating with alcohol and, and painkillers. And it sucks because it's a fucking cycle that it's really hard to get out of. And, you know, therapy might not be for everybody, but like friendship and openness is for everybody. Well, well said. Well, go. Everybody needs to go read the piece or or check out. I'm sure they're running the E60 on ESPN yeah. too. ESPN like, Plus. Every, every you can day see it on week. ESPN Plus they're, whenever you want. You can just sort of dial it up, go to the E60 section, or just you know Google Peace of Mind uh, ESPN. It, the the producer Blake Foman did a really awesome job uh, pulling it together, and you get to hear my serious River Runs Through It voice, uh, in the sort of voiceovers and, Hell yeah. you know, <laughs> obviously like I, I'm a, I like to joke around and be not serious too, but, um, this was, it was really like a passion project for me. And, um, you know, when I left ESPN, it wasn't quite wrapped up and I was like 
I'll just keep working on this for free if you want, uh, because it means that much to me. And ESPN was like, no, no, of course we'll still pay you as a part-time employee to sort of until, you know, it's finished. And it was hard. They, there was a lot of discussions and a lot of hard choices that had to be made for the story. And I'm just grateful that the people in ESPN fought for it. And, um, obviously my story was not part of, you know, the, the story in the end and that's okay. Um, I think it, the focusing on the athletes and, you know, not including any in my experience really made it so I was still like the objective observer in it. And, um, you know, it couldn't have been completed without the Kaiser health people, uh, sort of, you know, making sure that the science was, uh, nailed down and making sure that we were being the right kind of skeptics in it. Um, but I'm, I'm really proud of it. Uh, it was a hard one, but it was, it was a good one to kind of wrap up 11 years at ESPN with. What I'll say to you, Kev, is that uh, thank you for pushing this through. Thank you to, you know, not only your writing, but your experiences while going through it and everybody that has helped you on the writing side of it and then ultimately ESPN for pushing it because the more exposure that things like this get, the more, again, this is very selfish of me, but the more beneficial it is to people from my walk of life. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we've been preaching about for a long, long time. You mentioned Chris. He's absolutely leading the way uh, on the veteran side. He is heavily influenced and motivated by one of his close friends that he served with in SEAL Team 6, Marcus Capone. Him and uh, Marcus and his wife, Amber Capone, they both run an organization called uh, Vet Solutions. If there's veterans that are out there that are listening to this and want to get more information on what the the veteran side of cycle psychedelics are you can check them out at vetsolutions.org because marcus and amber are doing phenomenal work uh on behalf of like millions of us veterans and they're going and and speaking at capitol hill and trying to raise money and fighting fucking lobbyists from pfizer and every other pharmaceutical who would rather stick a dozen pills down your throat instead of give somebody the opportunity to go take a couple fucking grams of mushrooms somewhere, which, uh, you know, obviously they're not getting money back in their pocket yeah. for it. But and one of the, one of the cool things, honestly, about the wake network is that they kind of are really focused on pairing up athletes with veterans. And it's sort of like, you know what, we both come from this sort of alpha macho sort of, um, you know, world where you're, it's hard to be vulnerable because you can't do your job if you're sort of having full of self doubts. And so what they found is that it's easier for both of those communities to kind of bond pretty quickly and, and feel like you're on a shared experience of vulnerability because you understand it, that the worlds are vastly different, but also like share a lot of similarities. So Neil, anything else before, uh, for Kev about his piece, man? No, I think that's it. I mean, I got, you know, I got the sunny, sunny girl, my dog down here. She's got to go take a piss. You know I what? Know. Sunny ran into, I think she ran in some weed again a couple <laughs> days ago. She was inside little, the apartment or out on the street again, out on the street. You know, okay. she's a city girl. You got to watch it, man. I think, uh, we got a girl living next door. She had a party. She might've caught a, caught a joint butt on the roof, you know, but it's, uh, it's, it's like twice in six months. My dog at home caught some of my cousin's weed. And he left a big edible behind and Augie almost, I mean, we thought he was, we thought he was dying. He's like 13. He was, he was struggling. So listen, these, these substances for humans, not for dogs. Absolutely. Hey, before, uh, Kev again, thank you for jumping on getting in the booth. Uh, hopefully people here 
and learn a little bit about it. Check out the piece. Check out the E60 piece. And if anybody has any feedback, of course, they can hit us up wherever they find us. But also, the listener line is open. That's right. Trap Draw listener line. The number is 833-330-8725. Send us any feedback, questions, whatever you got. Neil, we've gotten quite a bit. People coming in about your lack of tire changing capability. They understand. That's that not you, true. They Nobody understand. Says it's it's a TBD. I've I haven't changed a tire. That doesn't mean I can't change. Of a tire. course, that's I, where I was going to go. I know I everybody has I full can. full faith that you actually can do it. But they a lot of people just wanted to make sure that the czar was safe. Ensure you you loosen them lug nuts before you jack it up. It's going to make your life a hell of a lot easier and safer. And when you pull that spare tire out. Make sure it's under the vehicle when you have it jacked up. Just in case the jack gets a little wobbly, car might fall off there. Nobody wants you getting squished, okay? So sure. safety first okay. all yeah. the time. <clears throat> and if you have uh, any of those little reflective panels, just make sure you're safe off the side of the road. You know, I wrote I wrote a little story um, about changing my first tire on the re- on the refuge. I remember uh, that. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. I, I read that. So you'd be a Nest member if. Uh, well, you know what, Cody? Next next month, maybe we can we can kick things off with if we get some good voicemails. Maybe we'll we'll address them one by one. Hell yeah, I love it. All right, guys, guys thank you. Always a pleasure to be welcomed into the booth. Thank you much. Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper.